0: First case for argument is 21-1489, North Dakota, United States versus Donovan Beichel. Thank you. Ms.
1: Healey? Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Megan Healey and I represent the United States in this matter. In this interlocutory appeal, the United States is asking this court to do two things. First, to recognize the spousal victim exception to the marital confidential communications privilege. The overwhelming weight of authority applies this exception to the communications privilege. The United States now asks this court to do the same. Second, to apply the spousal victim exception to Whitehall's statements that he poured gasoline throughout the cabin because he thought his wife was inside. Specifically, the United States asked this court to correct the district court's legal errors, concluding that the spousal victim exception applies only to statements that are threats and only when the spouse is a victim of the charged crime. The United States also asks this court to correct the district court's clearly erroneous factual findings. It's finding that Whiteell's statement was one of reconciliation, has no record support, and is contradicted by the entirety of the record. And it's finding that Ms. Cook is not a victim of the arson is so substantially against the weight of the record as to constitute a clear error.
0: What is our standard of review for these, your challenges at this stage of the proceeding to what you call findings?
1: Your Honor, the standard of review here is de novo. This is a case where this court is considering the... And you, and,
0: but these are findings, you just labeled them findings. I agree, I agree it's de novo on the on the ultimate issue, but, but uh, in many, most, uh, for example, suppression appeals... If there are actual findings, they're reviewed for clear error. What's, what's different about this?
1: Yes, Your Honor. I believe in our brief we set out for the factual findings a clear error standard, a definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been made. In argument two of our brief, that is the standard of review as to the particular factual findings. But as to the question, ultimate question here, one of the delineation of the federal testimonial privilege, this court reviews the mixed fa- findings of fact for the applicability of the privilege and the law as to the scope of the privilege, and this court reviews that de novo. In this case, we're asking the court to consider the uh, application of a testimonial privilege. The presumption here is that the evidence comes in and testimonial privileges are construed narrowly. This is particularly true in criminal proceedings where testimonial privileges are construed particularly narrowly because of society's strong interest in the administration of justice. The district court here inverted these principles. It expansively interpreted the communications privilege by its exceedingly limited construction of the spousal victim exception. It did so in two ways. First, the district court concluded that the spousal victim exception does not apply to communications unless they are threats or are they themselves crimes. The United States has identified no authority limiting the spousal victim exception only to statements that are threats. Indeed, three of this court's sister circuits have applied the spousal victim exception to communications that were not themselves threats. The First Circuit in Breton- I thought Allery did. Your Honor Allery was a case in which this court considered the anti-testimonial privilege as opposed to the marital confidential communications privilege.
0: We, we don't, you don't have any cases on the marital com, confidential communication privilege. That's what this is all about.
1: So uh, not I mean, from we, this court,
0: no case Senator, has ever done this. Well, of course not. No case has recognized that the exception that you're arguing for.
1: Uh, Your Honor, three of this court's sister circuits have recognized the spousal victim exception to the Marital Confidential Communications Privilege. The First Circuit in Breton from 2014. There, the communications at issue were not a threat. Okay, those, are the, the I, those are
0: in the briefs. That's fine.
1: <clears throat> yes, and I'd also like to point out, uh, again, you're right, the Tenth Circuit in Bahi is in the brief, but also the Sixth Circuit in Underwood from 2017 that is not in our brief. I filed a 28J letter two days ago identifying that. So there are three circuits that have applied the marital contributions, confidential communications privilege to statements. And indeed the Ninth Circuit has as well in the White opinion from 1992. But in these, the White in the White case, the statements and the communications at issue were threats. In Breton, Bahie, and Underwood, the communications themselves were not threats. And the district court's conclusion that the statements must be threats are contradicted by those circuits' cases. The communication here and admission that Whitehall or Gassie. Why, why?
0: Why wouldn't we follow our own precedent in Allery if we if we uh, enlarged the application of the exception to to this privilege?
1: I would encourage the court to follow its precedent in Allery. Allery, however, did not address the communications front, which is why we cite to this court's sister circuits who have addressed the communications privilege. But we do encourage the court to apply Vic Allery's definition of a victim. That is that is the district court's second legal error, and that it held that it must be only a victim of the charged crime. That holding, as Your Honor may have been suggesting, um, is not in line with Allery. In fact, it squarely conflicts with Allery. Allery in dealing with the anti-testimonial privilege, described the spousal victim exception as a well-established exception where one spouse commits an offense against the other. This report then said, an offense against the other has been broadly interpreted to include any personal wrong done to the other, whether physically, mentally, or morally injurious. This definition for the purpose of the spousal victim exception is broader than the district court's application, which limited it to victims only of a charged crime. And indeed, multiple states within this circuit apply the spousal victim exception to cases where the spouse is charged with a crime against a third party that did not that occurred in the course of committing a crime against the spouse. Those states are Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And those rules are cited in our brief. The district court here defined the parameters of a federal testimonial privilege by the charging decision of the prosecutor, or in this case, the grand jury, rather than by looking to the communication at issue and the context in which it is made. The protection of that communication is the only purpose of the federal testimonial privilege and should not be defined by the contours of the indictment. And indeed, this court in Smith applied the spousal victim exception to a case in which the wife who was the testifying spouse was not the victim of the charged crime. There, this court determined she was the victim of an offense against the other within the meaning of Valerie, where her husband was subject to criminal prosecution on drug charges. The offense against her in that case was that he had subjected her to criminal prosecution herself by placing drugs on her person. She was not the victim of the charged crime. When you take the proper understanding under this court's precedent of what a victim of an offense against the other is for the purposes of the spousal victim exception, it becomes clear that Ms. Cook was a victim through three different lenses. First, she was the intended victim of the arson. The record at this point is uncontradicted on that and indeed the district court acknowledged it. Second, she was the victim in an ongoing domestic violence crisis. We've covered the facts of this ongoing domestic violence crisis at length in our brief, and I won't repeat them all here. But she described a harrowing two days in which she was balancing White Owl's anger against her and her own fear and trying to stay alive. Indeed, as she told the agents in her first interview in the immediate aftermath of this experience, she just kept thinking he was going to kill me. And third, Ms. Cook is an actual victim of the arson. This is where we are asking this court to recognize the district court's clear error and to correct it. We've cited records citations in our brief for this point. There's an additional one that is not in our brief that I want to bring to the court's attention on this point. The defendant below in his memorandum in support of his motion to suppress, which is document 60 at page five,
0: argues. Why, why do we have to get there if you're right about the other two aspects of, of victim.
1: Your Honor, you don't have to get there. If, you, if we are correct about the other two, we're giving you three different lenses to look at, but we believe strongly that Ms. Cook is a victim through all three of the lenses. As to the one record citation that is not in our brief, document 60 at page 5, this is White Owl's memorandum in support of his motion to suppress. There he argued that he and Ms. Cook were tenants of Veronica Sirdal's at the cabin, that they had lived there for a month, and that in lieu of paying traditional rent, White Owl did work around the property. In light of these concessions from Light Owl, it is clear that the, that the district court's reliance on the fact that there a few personal possessions in the property and that White, uh, Ms. Cook herself did not own the property was clear error in light of the uncontroverted question that she lived at the property. And indeed, in both of her recorded interviews, which are both in the record, Whitehall, or Miss Cook, described that she had been living with Whitehall in Mandarin with Cody Sirdall until a couple days before the first interview. She explained toward the end of that interview that she and Whitehall were planning to move to Bismarck, suggesting that they were supposed to be in Bismarck by the fifteenth of that month. This shows that they were in transit during the time that they were living at the cabin, and at the end of the interview the agent asked her what her plans are. She did not say she was going back to some residence that other residents that she may have. Rather, she said she was going to ask her sister if she could stay with her. A few weeks later, Miss Cook in her second interview started out by saying things have been hard because she had nowhere to live. And at the end of that interview, she again referred to trying to find housing. And finally, in... In the record of document 107-1, Veronica Serdahl, the owner of the home, in the midst of fire suppression efforts, drew a map for the firefighters so that they could look for the people who were not located. And she labeled one of the rooms in her own home as DJ and Tara's room. That's Mr. White Owl's and Miss Cook's room. In the light of the substantial record evidence showing the fact that White Owl and Miss Cook were living at the cabin, Miss Cook was an actual victim of the arson and the district court's finding is so substantially against the weight of the record as to constitute a clear error. Your Honor, as I see I'm approaching my rebuttal time, if you don't have more questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal.
0: Well, yes, counsel, I do have, uh, uh, this, is, this is off the, off the beaten track, uh, but I wanted to ask you, in United States versus Hawkins, the Supreme Court held that the adverse testimonial privilege could be invoked by either spouse. Yes. In the United States versus Trammell, the Supreme Court overruled Hawkins, based on the common law tradition of uh, that that privilege. The scope of privileges can evolve over time. Now that tells me that the marital communication privilege would be subject to the same evolutionary argument. Did you preserve that issue?
1: Your Honor, we did not raise that issue in our briefs. Thank you very much. I will reserve the remainder of my time.
0: Mr. Greenlee? You're muted, Council.
2: <laughs> Still muted. Can the court hear me now? There we go. Okay. Uh, Thomas Murtha, I represent Donovan Whiteow um, as the appellee in this matter, um, the uh, government's interlocutory appeal uh, from the granting of a motion in limine uh, regarding um, the statement made by Mr. Whiteow, um to his wife in confidence uh, regarding pouring gasoline in and around the house. Um. The district court originally pointed out that the court's role. What what
0: makes it confidential other than the, the remote location where it occurred?
2: I, I think the uh, the district court also addressed that. Um, the as a technical matter, um, when people are married and they're well, having. Let me, let me rephrase the
0: question. How do, what what's the standard for determining? What do we look at? It's it, determine inf- whether what
2: whether it was confidential, just the judges just the judges oh well i think it was no um it's more than that there's a there's a presumption that begins with the fact that the parties are married the conversation or the exchange has to take place um under circumstances where um other people aren't privy to it um it's intended to be uh uh confidential in a sense that It's between the uh, the couple that is married, um, and it regards or wouldn't have occurred, occurred, you know, but for the fact that they're married, and that is uh, part of their relationship. So, if in cases that have um, addressed this issue, um, if it was done where someone could was uh, uh, in earshot of it, um, for example, sometimes when you're texting or if you're exposing it to, to being recorded, it's not considered confidential. But when the parties are married and they're alone, um, it's presumed to be confidential. And then the court can further look at the circumstances um, surrounding- What's, what's, what's the Eighth what's circuit case for that proposition? Which, there's several there, Your Honor, I'm sorry. When the
0: parties, when the parties are, are married and alone, pre, it's presumed to be confidential.
2: Um, I, I don't have that off the top of my head, but I believe that the district court included that in um, in its memorandum, and that the uh, and, and that's where where I was going with this was that uh, the district court pointed out that in light of the the motion in limine that it believed that the district court believed that it was first to determine whether or not the confidential marital privilege would would apply at all um and the court first determined that it did um, i don't believe that the uh, the plaintiff um is arguing that that it didn't to begin with but then the, the next step would be if the merit the confidential marital privilege does apply is there an exception and the court looked to tremble as far as the process goes, to determine whether or not an exception would apply. Not Tremel, I'm sorry, Allery. Use the same analysis in Allery to determine whether or not what's being coined the the spousal victim exception would apply um, to the confidential marital privilege. And use that same analysis from Allery to determine (laughs) that it didn't because the court first determined as a factual matter that Mr. Whitehall's wife was not a victim and then also determined that the statement regarding the the pouring the gas in and around the home was not a threat to his wife. So as a factual matter, taking those fact findings then and applying them as the court did in Allery only instead of applying it um, to whether or not the Defendant's wife well,
0: counsel, let, let, let me stop you on your argument. The trial Court just applied the uh, uh, the, the very good analysis in Allery on whether to extend the ex- exception. But the, but Allery was viewing re- dealing with expanding the spouse exception to children, and the analysis was the foundation was advisory committee in the Federal Rules of Evidence. I don't think there was any such analysis here, was there? What what? What learned what learned body has has urged this
2: extension? I'm not I'm or not aware I'm, I'm not aware of any, um, and I don't believe that the uh, the trial court was either. Um, and going
0: from, from going from spouse to children is is um, at least in, in, intuitively less dramatic than going from one privilege to an t- entirely different privilege.
2: Yes. Um, that's it. So in the course of the, of our motion and in the arguments that we've been making, we've been pointing out that thus far the eighth circuit hasn't addressed this issue. Um, and the trial court tried to do that using the same analysis from Allery and did not examine whether or not it was appropriate to do so. That's true. Um, it does seem that the, the trial court um, didn't didn't make that uh, didn't establish that foundation regarding the the two different privileges, and it's Mr. I think Mercer. it's significant. Yes,
3: would you agree that uh, the evidence shows that the defendant committed a crime against Cook, even
2: if it was not the arson crime? I I don't. What would the I don't see the crime that he committed against Cook. What What are we talking about? Well, the government says that he attempted to kill
3: her. Okay, and I don't. So I don't agree with that. She, it just so happened that she had snuck out into the car, but that he thought she was in the bedroom. Well, the okay, I throughout threw out the house and then burned it down and fled, yeah. and only. Later, found out that she had been hiding in the car. So, so <clears throat> I understood. It. So, let me just finish the question. Yes. Now you asked for clarification. I understood the district court to say she was not a victim of the arson crime because the judge thought uh, she had no property in the house and therefore was not a victim of the arson. Mm-hmm. I'm asking, would you agree that she was the victim of another crime, such as attempted murder or? Attempted assault or something like that
2: when I review the record and and the miss cook the defendant's wife she this is was all this is all presented as hearsay and recording she actually never testified but when you review that there's there's a number of inconsistencies here so the government argues and and there there may be statements that um the defendant's wife is saying that he went through the rooms and poured gas, so he knew she wasn't there. He knew um, who was in the base r- basement, right. Winifred Smith, the person that died, and Cody, were in the basement. He knew they were there. All right. so, so you're
3: saying there's a factual dispute about whether he had committed a crime against her, I guess, is your position. I, I,
2: he didn't know she was in the house because he was in the house apparently Why? pouring gas around. So he knew she wasn't there. What? Well, well, where, where, do pop- get, where do you get? Where How do you get that? Okay, thank you. Because if you read the entire record of what she's saying, and that she's saying that 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 the defendant, Mr. Whitehall, is going into the house, pouring gas all around it, specifically goes into their room and pours gas there, and pours gas around the outside of the house, which, by the way, is inconsistent with the forensics that show that just the opposite, but. He knew she wasn't in the House based on on that. But then when she's making these statements, the only time that she says that White Owl said this, the rest of the time she's saying he thinks this versus he said this. Now, she was never subject to cross-examination. She didn't testify. These are recordings taken from um, interviews with law enforcement. So in answer to the court's question, I don't think there's attempted homicide
3: follow up on that, If yes. uh, let's assume for the sake of discussion that there was a crime against Cook okay. but not arson. Uh, do you agree that there's an established exception to the marital confidential communications privilege in a proceeding against a third person if the crime that's charged was committed in the course of committing another crime against the spouse? Okay, I know See, there is not a three circuit, three states in our circuit adopt that and it's, I believe it's in the model code of evidence and the uniform rule of evidence. Do you have any dispute okay.
2: with, the, with that being part of the common law? I Regarding the third person we're talking about, and, and, and I'm, I'm very familiar with North Dakota's rule, it, it involves a child victim, not a third, just a, any third party. Well, the language says third person. It doesn't
3: say child. So the the argument here would be there was a crime committed against the people in the house in the course of committing a crime against the spouse, namely attempted murder or attempted assault and
2: so forth. If those were the facts, would the exception apply? I don't believe so, and I just from what you're telling me now and for what I know of the, uh, the rule, and I'm applying it in North Dakota, um, I don't believe that it, it would under that analysis. But um,
3: Okay, well, I'm trying to understand why. If there was a crime against a third person, namely the, the two people in the house, and it was committed in the course of committing the attempted murder against the wife,
2: why doesn't that fit right into the exception? It, okay, so that we know, not not talking about wh- wh- which jurisdiction are we talking about?
3: U.S. District Court for the District of North Dakota applying the uh,
2: common law. I don't think that, okay. I think that that would be to do that under the common law would be an expansion. I think that there are jurisdictions that might have that either by an evidentiary rule or statute. I don't think that's the way we would interpret it in North Dakota regarding the third, the third party. Um, okay, but I mean I understand what what the courts what the court's saying. Regarding, and we're talking about the confidential marital privilege, not whether or not the uh, the right. uh, other exception, whether also, or not you testify to anything.
3: In North Dakota and other jurisdictions, there's also an exception in a proceeding for a crime against an individual residing in the household of the spouse.
2: You yes.
3: Know yeah? Yes. Why, the, why wouldn't this case fit that exception, even if the only victims were the... Uh, other two people living in the house with White Owl and Cook. Weren't they residing
2: in the household of White Owl and Cook? That was not raised in the um, the original um, argument, but uh, that was a temporary housing. Um, they were living elsewhere, and they just stay there when he was doing work. So I don't believe necessarily that that was the their household and the evidence supports that they didn't have anything there. They would sleep there occasionally. um, But that wasn't their household. Okay. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm getting to the end of the time here. um, In conclusion, it's the the trial court made a fact finding um, based on uh, interviews that law enforcement conducted on various individuals. Um and went into great detail both um, in its original memorandum and in response to the uh, the motion to reconsider um, the record does in fact support the uh, trial court's fact finding, and the government doesn't agree with it, and they 're frustrated because they, they want the, uh, they want the district court to see things a different way um but I don't think that that should be a luxury they, they should be afforded. Um, I think that the analysis that was done by the district court in light of this having yet to be addressed within the Eighth Circuit um, was sound. Yet there's still the issue of the applicability to the exception. Um, the court used Allery. Uh, I think I do think that was an appropriate framework to use, um, but I think that if this court is going to extend that exception, that it needs to be wary that this is this the marital, uh, the the confidential marital privilege, um, is limited in itself to just those privileged communications. It doesn't bar um, any other testimony other than those specific, very narrow um, communications, and it it might not be necessary to extend it at all in light of that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, council. Is there a rebuttal time? I think there's some. There you go. Yeah, got two and a half minutes.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to respond first to council's argument that this was not their household and they only stayed there occasionally. This assertion is contradicted by the record and is directly contrary to the defense's position below. In document 60 at page five, where he argued that White Owl and his wife were tenants of Veronica Sirdall's and that they had been living at the cabin for a month. Next, counsel suggested that the record shows that White Owl knew Cook was not in the house. Nothing in the record suggests that. Indeed, Cook's statements that White Owl poured gasoline throughout the house because he thought she was inside are consistent. She does not make an inconsistent statement. I point the court to her April 6, 2019 interview that timestamps 20 minutes, 35 seconds through 24 minutes, 30 seconds. And again, later in that same interview starting around 42 minutes and five seconds. She is consistent on this point.
3: What about the on the crime against the third person exception? I didn't see where the judge made any conclusion about whether there was a crime committed against Cook other than arson. Was that Which issue presented, or? No, you're wrong.
1: it was not presented because of the way that the defense raised this issue. The defense argued in its motion in limine that the confidential communications privilege applied and the partners in crime exception did not apply. The United States argued that the spousal victim exception applied. And the defense's position was simply that the spousal victim exception does not apply. And so this issue was not squarely presented to the parties no. as to whether it was something beyond a victim or an intended victim of the arson. It didn't arise until the district court issued its ruling.
3: Well, I don't understand why the government didn't argue the third person exception or the household exception in response to the motion in limine. And if it didn't, where does that leave us?
1: Your Honor, as I said earlier, there are three lenses, at least, through which Ms. Cook is a victim, and we would argue that as the intended victim of the crime charged, as the actual victim, and as the victim in an ongoing domestic con- crisis, domestic violence crisis, the context of which is critical to understand the context in which the communication at issue was made. Your Honor, I see I'm out of time. I just end briefly by saying that the United States believes it would be unconscionable to permit a privilege grounded on promoting communications of love and trust between partners to prevent a spouse whom the defendant intended to and tried to kill from testifying against the perpetrator of such a crime as to his admissions of those acts. The United States respectfully asks this court to reverse the rulings of the district court. Thank you.
0: Thank you,
2: counsel. The case has been fully briefed and well argued, and we will take it under advisement.